If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Effectively, he was Henry VIII in the church when Henry VIII couldn't be bothered being in the church. Now, what did he do with that power? It was not just doing the king's will. It was quietly pushing forward the Reformation in ways which Henry might not have liked. That was Dermot McCulloch discussing Thomas Cromwell's role in the Reformation. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Ever since Hilary Mantel made him the star of her acclaimed Wolf Hall novel, almost a decade ago. Thomas Cromwell has been one of the most talked-about figures of the Tudor age. His life story has now been re-examined by Professor Dermot McCulloch of Oxford University in a major new biography that's the result of many years of research. I paid a visit to Dermot's Oxford home a little while back to discuss Cromwell's enigmatic life and his relationships with Henry VIII and Boleyn and perhaps most importantly, the European Protestant movement. Your biography has got the quote on it from Hilary Mantel saying that this is the biography you've been waiting 400 years for. Why do you feel it's taken so long for a book like this to be written? It's partly the archive, which is extraordinary and huge, um, because at Thomas Cromwell's death, his archive was confiscated by the Crown. And so very, very large indeed. But what becomes apparent from it when you start looking through it, is that it's entirely the in-tray. In other words, it's the correspondence sent to him, not the letters he sent out. Now, that's very odd, and you might think that that's how an archive would be constructed. You just file the letters that come into you. But no, Tudor archives have the out-tray in the form of the last draft made by the secretary. We know that because in the same year, another archive was confiscated from Arthur Plantagenet Lord Lyle, and we have both sides of it there. Now, Arthur Plantagenet Lord Lyle was the most unbusinesslike slapdash nobleman you can think of. So if he did it, clearly Thomas Cromwell, the great organiser, did it too. So the question then is what happened to the out tray? 
Well, I think that when the household heard that he'd been arrested, they knew that the papers would be confiscated. So what they did was to sit up all night burning the out tray on the grounds that that's what incriminates you. It's what you say. Now, it was a good try. Didn't work. But what it's done is leave Thomas Cromwell virtually without a voice. There are about 300 letters of Thomas Cromwell in existence, along the thousands of letters sent to him. So that's always been a problem. As soon as that archive became available, which was sort of the early 17th century, people uh, tried with Cromwell, but getting the voice is so difficult. You really, really need to lean on the sources in order to find the man amid all the voices coming into him. And so do you feel that over the course of the years you've spent working on Cromwell, you've been able to find the man? Yes, I have. Uh, that sounds arrogant, but you know, I spent six years on this. Uh, I have been through the papers with the, the sort of fine-tooth comb that perhaps only my old supervisor, Geoffrey Elton, professor at Cambridge, uh, also did that sort of thing. But um, Geoffrey wasn't a man for personality. His sort of history uh, thought that biography was... Uh, not the most important thing. Administration, government uh, was what interested him. And he almost didn't, deliberately didn't look for the real Thomas Cromwell. He'd have despised that project. One of the most mysterious parts of Cromwell's life, I guess, is his youth. How much can we actually know about his early years? Not much at all. Um, I thought it might be possible, but really there isn't all that much. What you can do about the early years is clear away the lies. And the lies are rather extraordinary. Uh, they are things made up by a Victorian antiquary about Thomas Cromwell's father, all sorts of things, and, and uh, Thomas Cromwell's family. That's all been unpicked by a splendid local historian, actually in Putney, Thomas Cromwell's birthplace, called Dorian Gerhold. And he's just proved that virtually everything we know, or thought we knew, is wrong. And that actually interestingly clears the field. There are genuine things about uh, Thomas Cromwell's childhood, or rather about his father, but uh, they are far fewer than we thought. And often they've been misunderstood, uh, even before I started work by myself. Uh, for instance, Thomas Cromwell's father has always been portrayed as quarrelsome, a pub landlord who watered his beer because he was always being prosecuted for offences. Now, that's a misunderstanding uh, that we've got the court accounts of the manor of Wimbledon in which he is constantly fined uh, as uh, a maker of beer. Now, that is not a fine in the sense of some punishment for wrongdoing. It's a licensing system. So all it is, is saying, this man's a brewer. So straight away, I am afraid that Hilary Mantel's lovely picture, wonderful picture of the opening of Cromwell's, Cromwell's life, the reeling from blows from his father, it, it's it's novelistic. And that's not a problem for Hillary. Uh, she's writing a novel. I'm writing history. Actually, Thomas Cromwell's father, from the scant evidence we have, seems to have been a respectable man, actually liked by people. So what happened next to Thomas Cromwell, his fleeing to Italy, doesn't seem to be about that. It doesn't seem to be about quarrels with his father. I think it's the sheer restlessness of the man, the uh, deep intelligence and he goes to Italy. How many Tudor Englishmen went to Italy? A handful. Well, he went, and then the obscurity really does descend. All we've got is one Italian novelist writing what is clearly a sort of fable 
about Thomas Cromwell's early lives. And it goes on rather as the biblical story of Joseph. So there's a, a time where he's unknown and poor and obscure. Then the man who saves him uh, turns up in England many years later, has his own troubles, and there is the powerful statesman who recognises him, weeps at the sight and helps him through. It's That's a fable, but it, it contains names and the names must be genuine. Uh, The names are of a a great Florentine mercantile family. And what I have been able to do is to show that Thomas Cromwell did actually know this family, kept in touch with them. It's clear that he was employed by them in the missing years, which are not just in Italy, but were in uh, Antwerp and then back in England. The early story is one of commerce and a bit of law. But the the puzzle is knowing where the immense sophistication, the culture of Thomas Cromwell came from, and that's an essential part of the story. In the article that you've written for us, you talk about how, while we may not know a huge amount about what Thomas Cromwell did in Italy, these Italian connections would prove really important for his subsequent career. So what was it about his time in Italy or the connections he made that would end up being so useful for him? Well, he was in the centre of Europe. If Putney is an obscure little village on the edge of London, England is an obscure little country on the edge of Europe. And you go to Italy, you go to the heart of sophistication in government, in culture. It's the centre of the Renaissance. Uh, It's just a different place. Uh, The colours are brighter. And that's, I think, what he brought back with him, a a sort of cosmopolitan nature, uh, a sense of breadth, which very few other Englishmen had. But they valued it uh, if they were people like Cardinal Wolsey or Henry VIII. They saw someone who could be useful to them. Was it this specific Italian connection that enabled Cromwell to form the relationship with Wolsey that would be such an important stepping stone? What I realised was the key to the puzzle as to why Cardinal Wolsey should employ this particular jobbing lawyer uh, stroke commercial agent. Why Thomas Cromwell, who's in mid-career, he's approaching 40, why that particular man? It's the Italian in him. Uh, And the heart of that is that Cardinal Wolsey wanted to create a tomb for himself, which would be the greatest tomb in all Northern Europe. It would outshine the tomb of King Henry VII in Westminster Abbey. And to do that, you have to do what Henry VII and his son had done, which is get Italian craftsmen to do it. So he'd employed Italian craftsmen. Now he needed someone to do the everyday negotiation with them. Uh, Those little tweaks to the whole project. You're dealing with, you know, temperamental uh, artists here. And that's what Thomas Cromwell's role was. It was to organise, liaise with the Italian sculptors and also do all the organisation for the rest of the project because the tomb is only the middle bit. Around it are priests praying for the soul of the cardinal at altars. Altars are in a church and the church is, in fact, two churches, one in Cardinal Wolsey's birthplace, Ipswich, the other in Oxford, uh, where a great college would go up, Cardinal College. And we simply don't know where the tomb was going to be. Could be in either of those or it could be in Westminster Abbey. I'm not sure that the cardinal ever decided, but the tomb was going ahead, so were the colleges. And Cromwell's job was also to organise the finance of the colleges, which is dissolving monasteries. And we all remember that Thomas Cromwell is remembered for dissolving monasteries. Well, he started under a cardinal of the Roman church. He knew how to do it because he'd done it for Wolsey. 
I know there is some debate about the nature of his family, but he's from a relatively low family for for the time. How unusual was it for someone like him to then end up working for someone such as Wolsey and be such a become such an important man of state? Not really that unusual. I mean, Wolsey, of course, had done it himself. Wolsey's the son of a grazier and a butcher from Ipswich, prosperous, but um, no coat of arms to start with. That's interesting. Same is true of Cromwell, except that what I've discovered, again, sort of hidden in plain sight, is that his mother was a gentlewoman from uh, a Staffordshire family called uh, Meverell. Uh, His father, interestingly, may have been Irish, which is something of a turn up for the book when you think of the collateral descendant of Thomas Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, who is not at all popular in Ireland. Well, it could be that they were Irish. That's another sort of exoticism. But the point is that Cromwell was exotic anyway. He had made himself exotic by this Italianness. So the background wasn't important. It was the talent that mattered. And his talent was clearly huge. Is that something that comes out of your research about how adept and how skilled a man he was? Yes. I mean, the, the, the story of the book is not the story painted by, again, my old doctoral supervisor, Geoffrey Elton, who saw the mastermind of a Tudor revolution in government. Well, Thomas Cromwell did revolutionise government, but there wasn't a systematic plan that I see. There was just a sense of, uh, we could do things better. We can organise things better. We can organise the kingdom better. Uh, Okay, the king wants to break with Rome. Let's organise it. The king needs finance. Let's look at how that can be done. And there's the ulterior motive in the man, which is hugely important. That's a big part of my story. And that is that he is a convinced son of the Reformation. He is what would later be called a Protestant And that mattered hugely. It's a paradox that a man who loved a cardinal, uh, adored his old master, Cardinal Wolsey, was pushing forward a reformation uh, once he was the king's servant. I think the, the way of understanding that paradox is to see that he probably thought that Wolsey could have done the job. Wolsey could be a reformer. And he was frustrated. We know he was frustrated by Wolsey's short attention span, sort of attention span of a gnat. Uh, and Wolsey had too much to do. And Cromwell was determined not to be trapped like that. Um, couldn't succeed because once you're Henry VIII's minister, you've got to do everything. Um, no one could really succeed. Well, he managed it for eight years. So what you said about Thomas Cromwell's religious beliefs, am I right to say that that is not necessarily the view that everyone's held of Cromwell and that some people believe he was acting more opportunistically and, and in order to further his career? But you, you're convinced that this is a sincere belief in what we've now called Protestantism. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. First, uh, the, the sheer risks he took, even on the Cardinal Wolsey, he was in touch with the dissenters called Lollards, whom the church had been burning as heretics for 120 years. That's interesting in itself. He's also in touch with the, the very first Protestants, evangelicals, if you like that term, during the 1520s when it's really dangerous to be in touch with that sort of world. But then under the king, playing an extraordinary game because the king put him in in charge of the church. I mean, his title is the peculiar one, never used again in English history, vicegerent in spirituals. Effectively, he was Henry VIII in the church when Henry VIII couldn't be bothered being in the church. Now, what did he do with that power? It was not just doing the king's will. It was quietly pushing forward the Reformation in ways which Henry might not have liked, pushing, for instance, the the Bible in English, 
uh, which to begin with, the king was extremely suspicious of. The king actually published the Bible in Latin, a new version of the Vulgate, and then Thomas Cromwell pushed forward many editions. But actually, I think one of the most crucial bits of jigsaw puzzle constructing I did was to find Thomas Cromwell's connection to the city of Zurich. Now, Zurich in the 1530s was the centre of really quite thoroughgoing Protestant Reformation. Uh, and its theologians believed things about the Mass, the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, which Henry VIII would have thought heretical. And he would have burnt them at the stake if he'd got the chance. And yet Cromwell pushed a, a most unlikely set of connections to this faraway city, which had no commercial relations with England, and made it a private project. What he did was to use existing links set up by his great mate, Archbishop Cranmer, in order to get a rather important young Swiss man, the adopted son of the chief pastor of Zurich, to come to England to actually stay in Oxford and meet young evangelicals who themselves then went to Zurich. This is really strange. It's the first student exchange visit in English history, but it's an exchange visit with an ideological purpose. These young men are going to see the best reformation in England, not Luther's sort of half-cock reformation, but something far more logical, far more thoroughgoing. If Henry VIII had realised, I think he would have been furious. And I strongly suspect that in the end, the reason that Thomas Cromwell was executed was as a heretic. Someone had quietly tipped off the king that this had happened. What do you see as the source or the origin of Cromwell's Protestant beliefs? Would that have been something that he'd acquired when he was travelling in Italy? I suspect that he had moved in circles which in Italy would later become Protestant circles, but you just simply don't know. Uh, and, and really before the 1520s, could anyone have been influenced? By the 1520s, he's back in England. I suspect the connections are much more with Lollards, the native descent, and they're also with Cambridge. He, he's very intimately connected with Cambridge. And you have to remember that when... Thomas Wolsey set up Cardinal College Oxford, all the leading academics were imported from Cambridge and it's clearly Thomas Cromwell who imported them and they all turned out to be Protestants. It's extraordinary. Cardinal, hugely embarrassed and scandalised. So who's at the heart of that? Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell's relationship with Cardinal Wolsey is clearly very important to his subsequent life. I mean, Cardinal Wolsey famously falls... Why do you think that Cromwell then stuck with him despite the risk to his own career? I think he adored him. And the reason I think that is that after the Cardinal's fall and death, Thomas Cromwell took his heraldry and made it his own. At the time of the, the, the deepest disgrace of the Cardinal's memory, Thomas Cromwell created a coat of arms for himself and got it lodged in the College of Heralds, which is just taking elements from Wolsey's arms. You don't do that unless you want to say to the world, this is my allegiance, I'm a Wolsey man. He was doing that at the time that Queen Number 2 was rising up the scale of power and... Queen Anne Bullen, or Anne Bullen as she was at the time, hated Cardinal Wolsey. She had effectively destroyed him. She had decided the Cardinal was her enemy. 
And you see now Cromwell actually also having to push uh, Anne Boleyn's career up, that's his job for the king, is at the same time saying, I am the cardinal's man. And I think one of the most surprising things I discovered, which uh, Hilary Mantel also spotted, was that Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell loathed each other. She obstructed his career. She did not advance it. And while she was queen, his career did not move on really at all. Only sideways and only quietly. And my reading of that is that Henry VIII wanted to promote Cromwell, but didn't want to risk a screaming row with Anne Boleyn. And hey presto, Anne Boleyn is executed, killed. And I'm sure that uh, it's Thomas Cromwell orchestrating that. And hey presto, after her death, he suddenly appear, a knight of the realm and Lord Privy Seal, all just suddenly jumping up the scale. The story of Cromwell and Boleyn is potentially the most well-known aspect of of Cromwell's career and maybe the most controversial. So you believe that that he was fundamental in orchestrating her downfall? I do. Is this purely, you think, because of personal animosity he held? Uh, Yes, I do. Uh, There is, of course, the problem for Henry VIII. The marriage of Henry and Anne was clearly a love match. No one else wanted it. It was a huge embarrassment to the political class. There's nothing they could do about it, Cromwell included. Uh, But once she was in power, that meant that she was dependent on the king still loving her. And the psychology of Henry VIII is that if he loves you, that's great. But that love can turn to equally extreme hate. And her, her purpose, apart from being the woman he loved before marriage, was to provide an heir. She'd provided a daughter and then a series of miscarriages. And the last miscarriage is the fatal one, January 1536. And it's at that point when she is desperately vulnerable that Cromwell began putting out feelers to the princess who was already in place, the Lady Mary. Now, I think one of the most other surprising things of the story is just how close and friendly Mary and Thomas Cromwell were. We have hindsight. We look forward to the reign of Mary Tudor, which is the Catholic reaction. She's become Bloody Mary in Protestant history. But remember, in the early 1530s, she's a late teenager. She's impressionable. Her mother had died. She's on her own. But the moment that Anne began faltering, Mary's stock rushed up, ran up. And at that point, Thomas Cromwell started putting his feelers out to her. And uh, the, the story of early 1536 is the story of an alliance between Cromwell and Mary against Anne. And uh, once Anne was dead, making sure that Mary would do something really, really difficult emotionally for her and acknowledge that her mother's marriage had not happened. The key to doing that was that it put her back in the Tudor succession alongside the new queen, Jane Seymour, who was very sympathetic to her and was working closely with Thomas Cromwell. It's a complicated story, but it makes much more sense than the traditional story, which could never explain why Thomas Cromwell had destroyed Anne. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When Anne was destroyed, could Cromwell have saved her life? Could he have made it so that, say, the marriage was annulled? It wasn't within Cromwell's power to have spared her. Quite possibly. But why would he? Because the relationship was clearly so poisonous. Uh, The possibility of her making a comeback was uh, too disastrous. And, of course, there was another queen in waiting, uh, Jane Seymour. And the the later part of the, the story is the story of the alliance between Cromwell and the Seymours with the Lady Mary as part of that alliance. So the Lady Mary became God's mother to Cromwell's grandson, his first grandson, and is very welcome at court under the Seymours. So why would you preserve Anne? It might have been possible that she could go into a nunnery, but she would always be there. And at least she wasn't burnt at the stake, which was one possibility for uh, a wife who'd been labelled as a traitor to her husband, the king. And this, I suppose, brings us on to the question of Thomas Cromwell's morality or his cruelty. He has often been portrayed as something of a monster for the way he brought down some of his enemies. But was that just the way you had to operate at the time as a statesman? Well, the monster was the king. And those around the king would have to deal with that fact. Once King Henry VIII's rage was up and his hatred was there, there was it, it's a juggernaut. You, you, you try to step out of the way. What you could do is, is try and adjust things so that the wrath can be turned down. And, and we see that with Cromwell's relationship with Thomas More. We see it with uh, various other people who are executed at the time. Perhaps the darkest association between Cromwell and the, those executed is that of the monks of the Charter House, the London Charter House. And uh, what you see there is a very intense relationship. He did try desperately to get them to... Uh, swear allegiance to the king. He did not succeed, and at that point, okay, everything they've got to they've got to be executed. He actually saved the Charter House from immediate dissolution. Uh, there is clearly a very Im- intense emotional relationship there. But I agree, you, you you can't turn him into a plaster saint. He is a ruthless politician. There's no getting away from that. But he is not a monster, and he is not a sadist. And if violence and cruelty can be avoided, he avoids it. How do you understand Cromwell's relationship with Henry VIII, which clearly goes through several different passages, but what kind of relationship did the two men have? It's the relationship of a fixer to someone who wants things fixing. It is not the same relationship that existed between Cardinal Wolsey and Henry, which is clearly friendship and intimacy, so that the cardinal could wander into the king's private apartments. That never happened, really, with Thomas Cromwell. I think the the king valued Cromwell and, for most of the time, liked him. Cromwell was very ill once, uh, and the king came to visit him in his own private house, which is a a very considerable mark of favour. They also did some business, it has to be said. But it's not the same closeness. I think it's also quite tense at times. That these, these are two men with a, with a real foul temper on them, both of them. And they would have screaming rows, which were observed at court. 
But Thomas Cromwell knew the limit of what you can do. In such flaming rows, the king would have to win. And so there are accounts of the the king uh, slapping Cromwell in the face and then Cromwell walking out, rubbing his cheek with a sort of uh, rueful smile. And that was not the end of the argument. Uh, after that, Cromwell could do the schmoozing, which would get a solution. Uh, you, but you needed that explosion and you needed to climb down in all the king could not lose face. It's very complicated. And in the end, it, you, you couldn't go on doing it. And, and hence the fall at the end. And in terms of Cromwell's actual political career, how far was he the architect of Henry's Reformation? To a very, very considerable extent, he was. He had been involved in the church, thanks to Wolsey, far more than any layperson around. He knew, particularly monasteries, but uh, knew clergy as well, very generally. And he had his own very definite ideas as to where it should go, which Henry did not. All Henry was interested in was being supreme head of the church, uh, in other words, sort of pope in his own realms. Cromwell knew what to do with it, which was not the king's vision. Uh, That means a Bible in English, which had been banned in England for 130 years. It meant uh, promoting Protestants uh, alongside Archbishop Cranmer, the other great enthusiast for Reformation. And it meant gradually pushing the church in that direction. Uh, Interestingly, Cromwell's friends were not all Protestants. And I think the width of his friendship comes from the Wolsey years. Uh, and those friendships endured remarkably, so that many of his close friends were actually Catholics. Uh, but that might have been an advantage for a man pushing Reformation. If you can have good relations with so many ultra-conservatives around, that's going to help matters. It's going to stop uh, explosions. But of course, it didn't stop the great explosion of the Pilgrimage of Grace. And one of the things I try to establish in the book is just how closely associated with hating Cromwell and destroying Cromwell the Pilgrimage of Grace was, really from day one. Those involved in the Northern Risings were uh, fixed on destroying Thomas Cromwell and said so. And in companion with that, was he also the major architect of the dissolution as well? Yes and no is the answer. Uh, that he had dissolved a lot of small monasteries for uh, Wolsey. He'd also encountered a lot of anger and resistance to that, and he knew that that would be what would happen in a dissolution. So we have uh, one record of a, a discussion in 1536, the year when a lot of monasteries, the smaller monasteries, were dissolved by Act of Parliament, of an argument in among the king's councillors as to what should be done. Should there be an act of parliament? Should there be gradual dissolution? Cromwell said, dissolve gradually. There's been trouble. Look at what happened under the cardinal. Let's just just take some bit by bit. And he was overruled. That's the interesting thing. Chancellor Audley, Thomas Audley, and Sir Richard Rich said, no, let's let's do this by act of parliament. Let's have a, a big sweeping dissolution. And, and they got the result. But I think what happened then, as as so often in Cromwell's career, is Cromwell saying, "Okay, that's what you want. I'll do the administration. And from then on, it was Cromwell taking it over. One thing which we need to realise about the dissolution of the monasteries is that it was never complete. Uh, In 1538, there was a, a definite 
government scheme to turn the greater monasteries into what were called colleges, which is simply a set of secular, non-monastic clergy in a college, a corporation. That's not, not, not an Oxbridge college necessarily, just a college of priests. And so you get Cromwell, no less, proposing that uh, the priory at Little Walsingham, where the um, image of Our Lady of Walsingham would be, that would become a college. Bishop Latimer proposed colleges. So there's a big government scheme in 38. What happened to it? Well, some of it was implemented. You know, there are six new cathedrals founded under King Henry VIII, and they are colleges. They'd been monasteries. They became colleges. Not only that, but two monasteries were simply turned into colleges. Thornton in Lincolnshire, Burton-on-Trent, Staffordshire. They became colleges into the last years of Henry after Cromwell's death. Now, what you're seeing there then is a definite scheme to turn monasteries into new corporate bodies. So the idea that there is a blanket dissolution of the monasteries doesn't quite fit the facts. And aside from his religious reforms, what do you see as Thomas Cromwell's other main achievements in his years as one of the leading politicians of the age? Integrating Wales into uh, the English polity, that seems to be his policy. Also trying the same thing with Ireland. And the Tudor relation with Ireland is, is pretty dire, pretty black. Uh, it began in Cardinal Wolsey's years, interestingly, that the English crown started interfering with a very complicated but basically stable situation in Ireland and trying to pull Ireland into an English mould. Thomas Cromwell tried the same thing, basically failed, but having failed uh, possibly because the, the wrong man had been chosen to do it, um, that's... Uh, uh, Lord Leonard Grey, having failed, started looking at other solutions. And in fact, after his death, one of those solutions was put into place. Turn Ireland into a kingdom alongside the Kingdom of England. Uh, make all the great Gaelic lords into English noblemen, give them titles. That had been proposed under Thomas Cromwell. I think it's his policy. And it worked for 15 years or so until the English crown tried something else, the disastrous policy of colonisation. But that's not his fault. So I think for a moment you can see a man who's trying to make all the king's dominions like England at its most efficient. That's an achievement. But then the other big achievement is the Reformation, putting into place a Protestant Reformation out of what, with Henry VIII, would simply have been a break with Rome. Now, that is the future. And the fact that he links it to a very particular sort of Protestantism, the Protestantism of Zurich and Switzerland, that's the future for the Church of England. Now, we've talked a lot about his political acts, but his personal life at this point is is quite interesting and quite tragic. He lost his wife and his two daughters. How far do you think that impacted on his career in other ways? Difficult to say about the impact, except that all he had left was one son, Gregory, who at the time of his wife's death in 1529 was probably nine, maybe ten. And Thomas Cromwell lavished love and affection on that boy, uh, who's always been portrayed as a, an idiot. Now, I don't think he was a great intellect, but uh, he was extremely lively. 
He was not a fool at all. He could have taken his place in local government, if not national. Uh, but anyway, it hardly matters because Thomas Cromwell put so much effort into that boy. And one thing he did was to marry Gregory Cromwell to the king's sister-in-law, Elizabeth Seymour, the sister of Jane Seymour. That's extraordinary. And if you want to understand the fall of Thomas Cromwell in 1540, just look at that fact. 1537, his son has married the king's sister-in-law. You could say that that made Thomas Cromwell the king's uncle. And just try being a Tudor nobleman and think of that. So there's dynastic future. He is invested in that boy and went on investing. So you can read his fall as related to trying desperately to promote Gregory. Coming on to, to Cromwell's fall, for a man who'd been such an astute politician for so many years, how was it that he wasn't able to prevent his own downfall and his own ultimate death? I think Thomas Cromwell's fall is, is the perfect example of personality in history. Because what he did was a pretty rational thing to do in his situation. He wanted an alliance with anti-Catholic forces in mainland Europe. Well, he looked around the marriage market. Uh, there were Catholic princesses and Henry tried very hard, but they didn't want him. Very sensible. And to cut a long story short, you get down the um, marriageable ladies of Europe and you get to Cleves. And there are two young ladies of the Ducal House of Cleves and Anne, Anna, was the most available. It wasn't a bad idea. And it all seemed to go well until she arrived. And then you've got the personality factor that Henry VIII simply couldn't bear her. Mysterious. I mean, Henry's ideas of beauty are mysterious. Uh, his, the great love of his life was Anne Boleyn and she clearly wasn't beautiful. Whatever Anne of Cleves was, she just didn't hit the spot. And now what Cromwell had done was press an alliance on the king, which depended on a marriage, which could not be undone. And in order to get out of that marriage to Anne of Cleves, which had to go ahead, the king would have to say that he had been impotent with her. In other words, the king would have to be sexually humiliated. That seems to me to the key to Thomas Cromwell's fall. There is the heresy in the background which Thomas Cromwell's enemies could play on with the king. But really, it's the matter of humiliating the king. And there was no way out of that. So in the last weeks, Thomas Cromwell just faced an appalling abyss. The king was furious, humiliated, and who would he blame? It would be Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell's downfall was orchestrated by some of the other leading figures of the Tudor court. How was it that he had made so many enemies? Cromwell's enemies were mainly those who felt that they had a natural right to be in government because they were noblemen. They resented him as they resented his old master, Cardinal Wolsey. These are people who should not be in government and, in fact, of course, were cleverer than them. So there's jealousy, uh, there is anger, uh, which they would construe as righteous anger against upstarts. He had made enemies, of course, of Catholics, but many Catholics had put themselves beyond the pale. But all the time, conservative, traditional people in religion would be looking for opportunities and there were all those who felt marginalised by the Seymour family, principally the family of the Duke of Norfolk, the Howards. So all these were there potentially to just pounce 
when there was a weakness. It was just like the pouncing which took place against Queen Anne Bullen. The moment there is weakness, then the jackals rush in. Thomas Cromwell himself, as well as having lots of enemies, had quite a network of friends and supporters. How was it that these people couldn't save him ultimately? When the king has decided that he hates you, there is no getting out of it. There is the awful juggernaut of Henry VIII's anger and rage. You simply have to step out of the way. There's also the fact that in June 1540, an extraordinary knot of leading members of the government are under arrest. Uh, not just Thomas Cromwell, but the Lord Deputy of Ireland, Lord Leonard Grey, had been recalled and then was arrested. The Lord Deputy of Calais, vital military outpost, um, Lord Lyle, had also been recalled to London and was arrested. So effectively, the kingdom was becoming headless. And if you were a loyal servant of the king, you wouldn't want to rock the boat anymore. Uh, the, the, the only two, what you might call, lieutenants in government left were two bishops. One was Bishop Holgate up in the Council of the North. The other was Bishop Roland Lee, the uh, Lord President of the Council in the Marches. They simply had to stay there, though both of them were allies of Cromwell. They couldn't open their lips. They were the king's loyal servants in a crisis. What could they do? And Cromwell himself didn't have the power to get himself out of this mess. There was no way. In the end, what he did try and do was uh, engineer a coup against his opponents, and that nearly worked. So that two leading bishops were arrested. Uh, one was uh, Bishop Sampson, and the other was the bishop designate uh, Nicholas Wilson. They were thrown in the tower only about um, a fortnight before Thomas Cromwell, and that's clearly a, a rolling coup against religious conservatives. So it's terribly delicately balanced that the French ambassador said at this exactly at the time, what's going to happen? Which way is it going to go? And it just took one tip. And I think all the time the problem was the king's humiliation, the king's sense of frustration and anger at having been put in this position. There have been, before your book, there have been a number of portrayals of Thomas Cromwell. There's a couple I'd like to ask you about. One is the famous Holbein painting of him. Mm. I'm interested to know how far you think that accords with the man that has come out of your research and what you yourself feel about that painting. Well, the, the first thing you have to say about it is that it hung in his own house. And so Thomas Cromwell saw something about himself in it. Uh, it is not a flattering painting. It's uh, a painting which actually looks like a man who's about to lose his temper. And you just imagine bellowing at someone who's got something wrong. What I noticed, however, is that it's very like another Tudor Holbein portrait of Sir Henry Wyatt. This is the poet Thomas Wyatt's father, who is portrayed in exactly the same way, dressed as a royal servant, looking preoccupied and a bit grim, clutching a document. And I think what this says is that the, the message that both these sitters wanted was, I am a loyal, busy servant of the king with many problems. And that's how you read it. Uh, at the present day, the original, uh, which hung in Cromwell's house, is now in New York. It hangs in the Frick, and it's been very cleverly placed beside another great Holbein portrait of Thomas Cromwell's great adversary, Thomas Moore. And Moore sits there in the portrait looking noble and thoughtful. What's interesting, actually, 
is that Moore's portrait was touched up and altered a great deal during its painting. And Crumble's wasn't. Moore clearly was looking for a self-image and uh, a self-presentation. Crummel didn't. Uh, there is the famous quotation from his collateral descendant, Oliver, when he was painted, that he must be painted warts and all. And I think that's actually how I see this painting. It's the same thing you get again and again with Thomas Cromwell. This is me. Just take it or leave it. This is me. And then, of course, the other very famous recent portrayal of Cromwell is in Hilary Mantel's novels, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, which has also been a TV series and a theatre production. And how closely does Mantell's Cromwell accord with your Cromwell? Mantell has an extraordinary historical instinct. And her Cromwell is rather like mine. And I started work on uh, my Cromwell uh, before her novels had won the brilliant success that they had. But as I read, particularly the first one, Wolf Hall, I gasped at what she knew about Tudor England. Uh it, it it's extraordinary in not just the, the grasp of detail, but the, the dynamic, which others had not noticed, the fact that Cromwell and Anne were so much uh, at loggerheads, for instance. It's not exactly Tudor England, but it's, it's rather like Philip Pullman's Oxford. It's a parallel universe which tells you a lot of things about the reality so it's a novel. I mean, Hillary has constantly had to remind people, it's a novel, it's not history. And you, you can only criticise it uh, on the level of a, a novel. As a novel, it is a wonderful portrait of the dynamic of the Tudor court. So I hugely enjoyed them. And I also think that the one thing she played down, and she would say this herself, is the religion. Um, it's there and it's, as I see, on, on the right side. But there the could be more religion. Perhaps for a modern novel reading audience, you simply can't do it. On that note, do you feel that your own religious background and expertise gives you almost a unique insight into what's happening at this period of history? Well, I don't know about new, unique, but this is an age in which all the big issues are religious. Everything is seen through the, the prism of the, the great catastrophe of the Reformation or, you know, great um, wonderful revolution of the Reformation. Everything uh, is seen that way. And Thomas Cromwell is a big player in that. He, he sets directions. So you can't ignore it. And it does help to understand what the real presence is about in the Eucharist uh, and what a sacrament is and why some people think there are seven and some people think there are two. All that sort of thing really matters. And of course, you can get burnt at the stake for thinking the wrong thing. So yeah, it does matter a lot. Now, in subsequent centuries, the fact that England was a Protestant country and that some of its colonies followed that have been absolutely huge to, to European and world history. Mm. How far do you think that Thomas Cromwell himself has been a huge player in the history of the world? Very much so. Partly because of the religion, almost primarily because of the religion, because he, he set the parameters for a future Protestant country. And England's was a Protestant empire. Uh, it it started out on the world stage from having been a second or third rate kingdom on the edge of Europe by being the champion of Protestantism against the great power of Spain and effectively won. And therefore, you can say that Cromwell's at the beginning of that. He is at the beginning, for better or worse, at the integration of Ireland into the English kingdom. 
the one part of the story he's not at all responsible for is Scotland. And, and I was surprised by how little part Scotland played in my book. And look at the index, you'll see. Uh, there's a story which is dependent on other things. It's dependent on the succession to the throne of James I. But um, the Irish-English relationship is his. The Reformation is his. All sorts of reconstructions of government, you could say, are either his or Woolsey's. And very often, I think it's Cromwell implementing policies which Woolsey would have liked to put in place. But yes, he's at the heart of everything. Things are just different after the 1530s. It feels different. And and back to Professor Geoffrey Elton, that's the one thing which really survives from his picture of Cromwell. He made a difference. And if Thomas Cromwell were around nowadays and were operating in politics as he did then, what do you think might be some of the things he could do now? Well, he was a substantial figure who would seize opportunities. I look around British politics now, I do not see many such substantial figures. I don't see people with much courage or vision or the capability of moving things in a positive direction. I think it would be rather good to have Thomas Cromwell around now. What he would make of Brexit, I do not know. But uh, you could not say that there was a pygmy in politics and there are too many pygmies now. And, and just one final question. If Thomas Cromwell were to read your biography of him, what do you think he would think of it? I think he would smile and I think he'd be grateful that I'd spotted things that others had not. And I think he might sigh at the picture of the tragedy, which was his undoing. It's a Greek tragedy. And he read uh, a lot. He would recognise that. That was Dermot McCulloch. Thomas Cromwell, A Life, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. And in the US, it will be published in a few days' time by Viking, with a slightly different title, Thomas Cromwell, A Revolutionary Life. Dermot has also written a piece on Cromwell for the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, and also includes articles on Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, the Anglo-Saxons, and a special supplement on the end of the First World War. Look out for it in all good retailers and our many digital formats now. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back in a few days' time with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.